0: All right, snowshoe's always a little uh, always a little different there's so many things going on but I appreciate everybody coming out my name's Chuck with team Faith and you know we get to have church at the racetrack and man what an honor it is even on a on a cool and windy day we're still up on top of a mountain and it's just you know, every day should be like this where we're feeling connected to God. But when you get up on top of Snowshoe Mountain, it's like, for real, this is beautiful. So, Lord, thanks a lot for today. Thanks for bringing us to this place. Just pray that you bless our time together and give me the words to say just to uh, encourage people. Let them know that you love them and uh, and do your work in my heart. Do your heart your work in all of our hearts. And I love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's this quote that I heard back in college, and it's stuck with me ever since. It it goes like this. It's, I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. All right, that was by a guy named uh, Charles Horton Cooley. And, Charles, and, you, and you say, Horton, here's a who? Who is cool? Charles Cooley? This guy would have no claim to fame whatsoever except for that one quote. He was a professor of sociology at the University of Michigan back in the 1920s. Having been born in Ohio, I know that not much good comes out of Michigan. Okay, <laughs> Go Buckeyes. However, Charles Cooley, he's penned that quote and has stuck around ever since. So I heard it the first time in college and I didn't really have to work on it because it just stuck with me. I'll say it again. It says, I am not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. So in other words, I'm not this really totally cool, awesome dude that I think I am. Nor am I the reasonable adult that you think I am. Instead, I think that you view me as a goofball. And so I spend the rest of my life trying to overcome that perception that I'm a goofball. And the harder I try, the goofier I become. Does that sound like high school to anybody? That was exactly high school for my life. But I know know we are all mature here. And so we say, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Hit liar. (laughs) But here's the question tonight. What does God think about you? Or more accurately, what do you think God thinks about you? When you think of God thinking about you, what do you think God thinks? When I think that God's thinking and thinking about me, what do I think? (laughs) (laughs) And so here's the deal. If I'm having a good day like today up on top of Snowshoe Mountain and finally the sun's coming out and it's shining on me right here, I'm up in front of you all, God's happy with me. Because I'm up here doing my thing, and he's just kind of shining on me. So God's obviously, he's happy with me. But as soon as that cloud comes over, i be like, oh no, I've let God down, I've disappointed God. Or here's, here's worse yet, you know, we have a bad day, and we do things that we know that we ought not do, and we fall back into those old patterns, those old sinful habits. We do something that disappoints ourselves, we're disappointed in ourselves, and so automatically, what do we think about God. Well, God is also disappointed in us. Matter of fact, God might just be angry with me. And on days like that, you better not stand near me because there might be a thunderbolt from heaven and we we'll all get fried because God's mad at me. But is that really? Is that really how it works? You see, we go through all of our life trying to think about, okay, so if I could think like God thinks, what would I think about me? But in the words, in the words of Squints from one of the greatest movies of all time, That would be the sandlot. I'm actually talking about a family-friendly movie tonight. Just a a brief mention. You remember the sandlot? There was a kid, Scotty, moves into the neighborhood, and he's the new kid. He's kind of awkward. And and he goes out to the ball field and he's trying to make friends and finally he kind of gets connected and somebody hits a ball over the fence. And so Scotty, he runs over the fence, he starts to climb the fence, and they all pull him down. What are you doing? And Scotty said, Well, I thought I'd just climb the wall and get the ball. And Squint says, Well, if you were thinking, you wouldn't have thought that. <laughs> what does God think when he thinks about us? When I think of God thinking and thinking about me, what do I think that God thinks? If I was actually thinking, I wouldn't think the way that I actually think. So we're going to look at that tonight. Jesus. Jesus, when he was on this earth, his whole life and his whole ministry was all about connecting us with God the Father. He was all the time talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the God the Father, and he's given us a picture, he gives us many, many different word pictures about what the kingdom of heaven is like, and what Father God is like, and so tonight I want to dig into Luke chapter 15, and when I say Luke chapter 15, I'm actually talking about the Gospel of Luke, but before it was called the Gospel of Luke, when you, read the, when you start to read the book of Luke, it says, I investigated these things thoroughly and i found these to be true, I'm writing them down, dear Theopolis. It's a letter to a guy named Theopolis. And Luke was a Gentile. He's like you and me. I'm not a Jew. And Luke wasn't a Jew either. He was actually a physician. He was a doctor. And so he took a very scientific approach. He said, man, I have investigated all these things. Here's what I found to be true about the life and times of Jesus the Christ. And so in Luke chapter 15... We get we get to talking about Jesus. One of the most interesting things about Jesus is that anywhere that Jesus went, it seems like people were always gathering to hear Jesus speak. Matter of fact, people that were nothing like Jesus always liked Jesus. And Jesus liked them. So, when I dig into this in Luke chapter 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. The people who were nothing like Jesus were drawing near to Jesus. Now, <clears throat> just to give you... <laughs> The context. I know none of us here are very fond of paying our taxes. All right, so when we talk about sinners today, we don't normally talk about tax collectors too. But back in, back in this day, back in the first century in Jerusalem and in, in the, the, the country of Israel, they were under Roman domination, Roman rule. And so the Romans had given uh, authority. They actually farmed out their tax collecting process and they cut it into districts. And so you could actually go to Rome and say, I will collect taxes for you Rome didn't care how you got the taxes as long as they got paid and so as the district manager they would go back and they would they would hire local sales reps to extort taxes out of people and so the reason that tax collectors always have such a negative image in the gospels is because these were fellow Jews that said hey I'll make a quick easy buck I'll be a tax collector I will extort money from my neighbors you see it's not that you owe 10% of your income on tax, it's that that's what we're giving to Rome. You're going to pay me 30% because I got to take my cut, my boss has to have his cut, my boss's boss has his cut. Finally we get it back to Rome whatever that percentage is. And if you don't pay, I got the Roman soldiers behind me and we will break your arms, break your legs, whatever we have to do to get the money. There's a there's a toll tax, there's a bridge tax, there's a there's an income tax, there's all kinds of taxes and these are being administered by your neighbors. And so these guys in the New Testament when you talk about sinners, the worst of the worst, there's the worst of the worst, and then there's tax collectors. And so it says that the tax collectors and sinners were gathered to hear Jesus. Of course, wherever Jesus goes, people are always gathering to hear him. He's got the worst of the worst, he's also got the best of the best that comes out to hear him. The the religious leaders the scribes and the Pharisees. As a matter of fact, it says that, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. They were there saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. These religious leaders were the ones that would always say, Here's what you have to do in order to be good with God. In other words, here's what you have to do in order for God to think good thoughts about you. And so they had this long list of rules. And there were heavy burden in their regulations that people had to follow in order to be right with God. And so Jesus, it seems like the only time he ever had friction with people was with religious leaders. Tax collectors, sinners were all drawing near to him. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, The man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told this parable. And so he starts to tell a story, and a parable is just a story. It's a made-up story. Jesus makes it up in order to illustrate the point. And he tells a story. He actually asks the question. He says, Which one of you... All of you that are gathered here, and he knows he's got two people in his audience. He's got the law makers, the Pharisees and scribes, and he's got the law breakers. He's got the sinners and the tax collectors. He says, which one of you, having a hundred sheep, if you lost one, would you not leave the ninety-nine and go find the one that was lost? And it's a rhetorical question because all these lawmakers and these lawbreakers are sitting together and they're like, yeah, yeah, we ain't got nothing in common, but we agree with Jesus on this one. Yeah, we would leave the 99, we would go get the one, we're good. And then he tells another story, he says, there's a woman, she's got ten coins. She loses one, and she goes nuts. And she cleans her house from top to bottom, and she sweeps out every nook, every corner, every cranny, until she finds that one. And then she celebrates would not not be her response, and all the lawmakers and the lawbreakers are not. Yeah, yeah, that would be. She would post it on Facebook. I mean, she would have a big old celebration about finding that one coin. Like, yeah, yeah, we're good with this. And then Jesus tells a story that we probably all heard before: the prodigal son. Although the word prodigal is nowhere nowhere in the actual story of what Jesus says. But we've probably heard the story of the prodigal son, but here's how it goes. As Jesus sits down and he starts to talk about this, he's talking, he's talking directly to his audience. The lawmakers, the lawbreakers, the people that said, oh man, he eats with sinners. And Jesus is making a point. Alright, you want to know what God is like? Let me tell you. There was a father. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, to make this, uh, to understand this in modern day terms, Jesus is telling a story about a wealthy man who had two sons. The youngest son comes to him and says, Dad, when you die, you're going to leave me an inheritance. I know I'm the younger son, so it's not going to be 50-50, because in our culture we don't do things that way, but I'm probably going to get 30%, 25%, whatever it is that you're going to give me You're going to give it to me when you die. The problem, Dad, is you just won't die. And I want my money now. Now, the audience, as you understand the audience that Jesus is talking to, the lawmakers are like, oh, the audacity of that kid. Unbelievable. Can't believe this. The lawbreakers are like, dude, that's bold. I wouldn't even say that. And Jesus says, So the father actually gives in and gives the son his inheritance. And he divided his property. Not many days later, the young son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. (laughs) In other words, he goes to the city. He spends all the money on the fun stuff. He gets a Porsche. He gets the, he gets the condo on the, on the, with the, with the beachfront. He's got the big screen TV. He calls Geek Squad to come in and hook it up with surround sound. He has a big old party. He has a big time with his daddy's money. But then what happens? You know how it happens because we see it all the time. Even in this world, somebody comes across easy money. They spend it all. And when it's all spent, it's gone. <laughs> and that's what Jesus says happens to him. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. In other words, he had to sell the big screen TV, and the Porsche got repossessed, and the bank foreclosed on the condo. Next thing you know, this guy has nothing. And he began to be in need, and so he went out and hired himself out. He goes out and he tries to find a job, but it's a famine, and there's no work to be had, the economy's repressed, there's nothing for him to do. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Now remember, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience here, and everybody, the lawmakers, the lawbreakers, both alike, they're saying, oh man, that's awful. We know what it's like being, even, even the lawbreakers, we know... The pigs are unclean. We know we should never do anything with a pig. Feed the pigs. What's a, Don't touch the pigs. Don't look to the pigs. Don't feed the pigs. But this guy, he's in such desperate need that he's tempted to eat the food that he's feeding to the pigs because he's so desperate. He is so broke, and he is so beyond himself in need. And then he comes to his senses. Jesus says, he said, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants... Have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'll tell you what I'll do. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, he finally has that moment where he comes to himself and he says, Man, what an idiot I've been. I can't believe I did that to my dad and I've lost everything. I'm sitting here and I'm starving. I had no idea how good I had it until it was all gone. But here I sit and I'm starving. And the servants that my dad hires actually have it better than me. So, what I ought to do is go to my dad, tell him I'm sorry, and see if he will hire me as a servant. I'm not worthy to be his son. I know I'm not worthy to be his son. But I'll see if maybe I can be his servant. See if maybe I can earn my way back into his good graces. He arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. (laughs) What does God think when he thinks about us? When I have that moment where I'm at the end of myself and I'm sitting in the pig pen covered in pig slop and I come to my senses and I say, Oh God, what have I done? What does God think about me in that moment? You know, if we're thinking with our stinking thinking, we're thinking, well, God's upset with me. God's disappointed with me. God's angry with me. But maybe if I can come back and and maybe I can be his servant. Maybe I can earn my way back into his good graces. But what did the Father do? Remember, as Jesus tells a parable, he's illustrating who God the Father is. The father in this story, when he sees him afar off, has compassion. Do you think of that? When you think of God thinking thoughts about you, do you think that God has compassion for you? No, it's way easier to think that God's upset with me and that God doesn't like me and that God's angry with me. It's way easier to think that, man, I deserve some bad stuff to happen in my life. But Jesus is telling us, no, God has he has compassion. And so he the son comes home. And the father saw him a long way off. felt of compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he starts to give that speech that he had prepared. You know, that speech that he was rehearsing in the pig pen. He starts to give it, and the father cuts him off. And he, you see, he yells to his servants. He says, bring a robe. The son doesn't even get a chance to say, I just want to be a servant. And the father says, bring a robe. It doesn't say bring work coverall. It says, bring a robe. Bring sandals for his feet. Don't bring the work boots. Bring the Birkenstocks. And put a ring on his finger. Put the sign that he's my son. Put that on his finger. Meanwhile, the son is just like, I don't deserve this. I'm the prodigal. I'm the one that was just wallowing in pig slop. And the father says, you're my son. Welcome home. Let's kill the fatted calf, is what he says next. Let's kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You know, as with um, as with us, when we uh, when we lose our way, and we come back. I think the last thing that we can imagine is having a celebration or a party. I'm actually borrowing heavily from uh, one of Andy Stanley's sermons that he preached a long time ago. He talked about the prodigal son, and, and he, he gave an illustration just to put this in modern context, just so we can understand. And I think that all of us, hopefully we've not experienced it in our own family, but we've all heard of the family that has the son or the daughter that when they get into high school, they start dabbling with the party scene and they get into the drugs and they get into the alcohol and they get into all that goes along with that. And next thing you know, they're dropping off the map and, and uh, you hear that they're in rehab and they break out of rehab and they, they, they find the family home empty. You know, everybody's out to dinner and they break into the family home and they steal all the family heirlooms and mom's jewelry and then disappears for like two years. Can you imagine the moment? That you, having been friends with this person, and you've heard about their child having done all this, getting a phone call and saying, "Hey, you remember my kid?" You say, "Yeah, yeah, I remember that one that you know kind of dropped off the map after doing all those really bad things and breaking out of rehab and all that." Oh, yeah, yeah, you got to come to a party tonight because we're ha- my kid is back. You're like, "What do you mean he's back?" Well, he's back, man. He just showed up on the front step today and I'm having a big party. We just we're just having a big old barbecue. We got some uh, we got some ribs and we got some wings and you got to come over and have this party with me. I mean, I don't know about you, but I know for myself, I'm I got some questions. Like, "Hold on a second. You say he just showed up? You don't know where he's been for the last 2 years? I mean, has he been through rehab? Did he do 12 steps? Did he do all the 12 steps this time?" I mean, I got some questions. You know, that's kind of what's happening in this story here. Is that this kid who has been living this wild life, all of a sudden he shows up, and now the Father's throwing this big party. Remember, as Jesus is talking, His audience is divided into two people. There's God the Father who's being illustrated in the parable. Then you got the lawbreakers and the lawmakers. And in this story, Jesus, so often when He tells a parable, He's teaching the audience directly. And the audience can see themselves in the parable. At this point, all the loudbreakers... All the tax collectors and sinners are sitting around like, oh yeah, we know who that is in the story. That's me. <laughs> That's us. We know that we're that son that squandered the the, uh, the father's money. But now we get to enter the second half of the audience, the lawmakers, because Jesus goes on and he starts talking about the older son. The older son is out in the fields and he hears the music coming out across the fields. He hears the music and the laughter and... And he pulls one of the servants aside and he says, What's going on at my dad's house? It sounds like there's a party going on. I hear a mariachi band happening. What could possibly be an excuse to have a mariachi band? And the servant says, Your brother. My brother? Yeah, you remember the one that disappeared a couple of years? Yeah, what about him? That loser? Well, he's back. And your father has killed the fatted calf and he's throwing a big party. And at this point, the older brother is incensed. And he is angry. And the father comes out to talk to him. He was angry and refused to come in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father. He said, look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He starts to give the opposite of the speech that the younger brother gave. The younger brother comes home and he says, I haven't. I haven't been a good son. I haven't been a wise steward. I haven't been a good person. The older brother is like, I have, I have, I have. I've done all these good things. I've always obeyed you. I've never disobeyed you. I've always done A, B, and C. I'm the perfect law maker. I'm the perfect law keeper. <laughs> and, and the father responds to him. He said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost And now he is found. Didn't say anything. Didn't say anything to the older brother like, yeah, you are right. You're a good rule keeper. No, instead, son, you have always been with me. Now wait a second, Jesus, as Jesus is teaching this story, Jesus, are you telling me that with is better than do? Because that's not how I've thought about it all my life. Matter of fact, a lot for a lot of people. The reason that they don't want to come and follow Jesus is because they think that with Jesus, there's a whole bunch of rules that you have to follow. They've been around a culture that's told them that you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to have your hair this right, you got to have your clothing you, it has to be this long, or it has to be this shorter, it has to be something else. And there's all these rules. The reason I don't want to, the reason that we don't see sinners and tax collectors hanging with Jesus today is because they think, we think, I think that when God thinks about me, I think I need to be doing a better job. And Jesus says it's not about do, it's about with. You've heard this before. Religion is all about do. Jesus is all about done. Jesus is the only one that could do. Jesus is the one that lived the perfect life. He lived the life that you and I wish we could live, but we have no shot at making it. We have no shot at doing it. We've all sinned. We've all come short of God's standard. So Jesus is the one that did it. And Jesus, before he was crucified, was on this earth and he was showing us the way. He was teaching us about God the Father. And he said, It's not about do, it's about with. And all through Jesus' ministry, he's all the time saying, Follow me. Come be with me. That relationship, be with me. And it's funny that as people were with Jesus, they changed. Not because they had a whole long list of rules that they had to keep, but they were with Jesus. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the original letters to, to the early church, you learn about Jesus. And you learn about the disciples. You've heard all about the 12 disciples, Peter and John and, and uh, Andrew and, and Judas and all these disciples that, that were, were hanging around with Jesus. And you see all the blunders and mistakes that they make and yet when you open up the book of Acts after Jesus has been crucified, buried, rose from the dead, all of a sudden, those men who were with Jesus, they go into they get they get arrested and they go in and they have to give a, an account of their actions before the high the, the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And they're so bold, and they're so courageous, and they're so well spoken that the Sanhedrin and all the people that are in the audience say look at each other and say Who are these guys? Are they not simple Galileans? I mean, they're not educated. They're just stupid fishermen. And yet they recognize them as having been with Jesus. It's not about do. It's about with. And so Jesus, in Luke chapter 15... As a matter of fact, as he started his stories of the parables, he told that story about the lost sheep which one of you would not leave the 99 and go find the one everybody's not in an agreement yeah, that's exactly what I would do He says, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people that had no need of repentance And so I don't know where you are at tonight. But I think that every single one of us has these thoughts that, man, if if I'm thinking like God's thinking, then God's upset with me. But it really, having known the truth, now you don't need to be thinking like that. Because if you if you were thinking, you wouldn't think like that. Because Jesus came and showed us the way, and He said that's not that's that's not how God operates. That's not how it is at all. You see, I remember for myself, and I I, I share this because it was such a pivotal moment in my life. <laughs> I was raised, I was raised in church. And whether I was taught this directly or just kind of assumed it, I think so many of us, we just assume it, that I have to be good. And to be good, there's this long list of rules that I have to do, going to church so many times a week and reading my Bible and praying, and there's this big, long checklist. And I tried so hard, and I could never make it work. I was the prodigal son. I just turned my back all together on church, went, and I squandered everything that God gave me. I spent so much money and, and the party and everything. When I finally hit my knees, it was exactly like being in that pigsty. I said, all right, God, this was my prayer exactly. I have made a mess of my life. If there's anything that you can do with my life, you can have it. You can have it all. It was exactly like the prodigal son saying, I think I'll just be your I'll offer to be your servant. I'm not worthy to be your son. And we sit here tonight as we go and we struggle through our lives and we say, I'm not worthy to be your son. Isn't there a penance that I can do? Isn't there a price that I can pay? Isn't there a checklist that I can cover? And meanwhile, what does God see? He sees our heart. It was interesting that as the prodigal, he wasn't even to the doorstep yet. He was afar far off, is what Jesus said. A far off, way out there. And the Father saw him and had compassion and ran to him and hugged him and embraced him. If you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, man... People who are nothing like Jesus, they like Jesus. Being with Jesus is probably the greatest privilege, without a doubt, the greatest privilege of my life. For those of us that are Christians and kind of lost our way, kind of fumbling around, man, it's just like that. You turn around. It's right there, ready to put that ring on your finger. Lord, thanks a lot for today. Just thanks for the opportunity to be here. Thanks for the words of Luke that he, that he was able to record for us. What a powerful story, just a picture of who God is. As we get to thinking about what you think about us, I just pray that this will resonate in our hearts, that uh, that we know w- without a doubt that you love us. So challenge us, encourage us, and bring us close to yourself, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Thank you all for hanging out. Have a great race tomorrow. And if I can do anything for you, of course, love to say a prayer with you or anything I can do, I'll be right here.